Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right, we're live here with Alex Shalekian. How's everybody doing today? Good. Awesome. For what, sure are years, what, what do you got there, Alex? Uh, let me put this down and grab the bottle here. It's been a crazy week, as we could say, right? Uh, so I decided to go with some tequila. This is the uh, Roblefino from Partida. It is uh, tequila, but it was uh, put in sherry oak casks. So it has kind of the taste of a whiskey. Uh, so that's what I'm enjoying today. Nice uh, tequila. That is, yeah. T- this, I guess, this week has been worthy of tequila for the Americans, right? And the Perfect. world. Probably. I enjoy tequila, but this is uh, kind of like a double. You know, you get. So- you don't even tequila. have the rocks on there. You're, no, you're no. A good man. <laughs> Jason, what are you drinking today? I got a Armagnac. Uh, I've been known to drink water on this podcast, but uh, with the week, yes, yeah, so we'll have some of uh, Armagnac because uh, I'm uh, in the cognac uh, kick here lately. Yeah. Excellent. You got a beer going? Oh, Corona. Nice. Corona. A couple of red wine. Nothing too crazy. Mm. Great. All right. So listen, before we begin, um, let's just make sure that everybody understands that this is a free-flowing conversation. None of it should be considered as advice. If you need any advice, contact one of Alex's advisors and make sure that you get the right thing that's suitable for you. Um, you know, that if you're in Canada, you might want to reach out to one of us. But just generally speaking free-flowing, um, and uh, and none of it is investment advice. So with that, Alex, <clears throat> you know, we we actually met, Jesus, like a year and a half ago in the uh, LA FinTwit. Uh, it felt like a, 20 years ago, but 
Back yeah, to, we were out in the ocean, you know, a nice little patio. I had a great conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been following what you've been doing. But why don't you tell the audience that may not know you uh, what uh, what your journey has been, what, how you got into the business, and, and tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sh- uh, shout out to Corey Hofstein that helped put that or, uh, together. Right. Uh, we have our LA FinTwit meetups, uh, which, like you just said, it feels like it's been 20 freaking years since we last saw each other. But uh, those have been fun. Um, You know, I've gotten involved with the Twitter community and everyone kind of gets to know each other. But it's nice to be able to obviously meet face to face. Uh, um, So a little bit of my background. uh, I am the founder and CEO of Lake Avenue Financial, which is an RIA based here in Pasadena, California. I'm coming to you live from my home, uh, which I've been basically in since March of last year. Uh, and you know, we've done a great job as far as growing our firm over the years organically, as well as through acquisitions. Uh, and you know, I'm more than happy to help. I know, I think you guys get a lot of advisors that join in on these live streams. So if there's questions that people have or comments or whatever, more than happy to help. As, as you mentioned, this is a, a free flowing conversation. Yeah. So, so sure. thank you for inviting me guys. Hey man, it's, it's a pleasure to have you. Cause I think. You know, it's interesting. We, I think, all started. Jason, you were also an advisor back in the day, right? Um, who with with? Oh, you're muted. Oh, you're uh, muted. I think. There we go. Sorry about that. Yeah, Merrill Lynch and uh, CIBC Wood Gundy. Way back when Midland Walwyn in Canada. So I was an advisor for over ten years. Yep. Right. So we, we, a lot of us have like background on, on the advisory practice and well, so, so we get, we connect really well with the advisory space in, all over the world, Canada, us globally. And as I've been following what you do, I, I, you know, it's really, you really seem to hit the nail on the head in many aspects of, of practice management. So we wanted to Thank have you. you on to really talk a little bit about your journey because it really is being an advisor is not just about knowing how to give, um, investment advice. It has to do with entrepreneurship. It has to do with organizational skills, um, you know, people skills, social communication skills. And you seem to do a pretty good job. I've always found your approach very engaging. And uh, we wanted to have you on to, to see if you could share some of that insight. As well as like on the entrepreneurial side, I'm really interested in hearing a little bit about your, your views on, on building a, an asset management firm. But in, like just Tell us a little bit about uh, what you think Lakeviews and, and your organization's forte is. Like, well, what what is it that makes you guys unique? Yeah, before I talk about Lake Avenue Financial, it's it's funny you mentioned communication. I don't know if my wife Rosa will agree with you on those, but uh, maybe different when it's business as opposed to personal types of stuff. Uh, uh, but. <laughs> We're all trying our best, especially given the circumstances. Everyone's kind of cooked up at home. And, and uh, I got three boys. They're older. Uh, so they're all doing school from home and everybody's here. So anyways, wow. uh, as far as Lake Avenue Financial is concerned, you know, we it, it was a journey to get he- where we are today. Uh, I started in the industry back in 97. I started at a firm, uh, Sun America Securities, which later on became AIG. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that one, yep. but... Uh, um, you know, I was a registered rep there working, trying to learn the ropes. Uh, but before I got there, the interesting part about my journey was the fact that I didn't think I was going to come into this industry. I was studying accounting. And while I was in school, I realized that, you know, I really enjoyed investments. As soon as I got to high school, you know, my last economics class in high school kind of got, uh, 
got that little tingle in my head of, oh, this is interesting. Uh, you can buy companies and be owners and, and so forth. And I started buying and selling. Uh, you know, I had a broker at Dean Witter when I was 18, which was pretty funny. Uh, and, and I would call him up and we would talk about stuff and Yahoo was going public and we wanted to jump into the IPO and so forth. And then E-Trade came along and started doing, started doing some online trading and then eventually started buying uh, funds. Uh, if you guys remember Putnam from back in the day, how popular mm -hmm. they were, the Voyager Fund and all this stuff. So it was the rah-rah days before, you know, 2000. And uh, I, I was very much interested into it, but I, I, I thought I was going to be an accountant. So I started studying for accounting. Uh, I was working at an accounting firm, clerking with them at the time. And probably one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life was I would talk to the partner at the accounting firm and him and I would sit there and actually open up the Wall Street Journal that they would get delivered every morning. And we would look at our stocks, you know, back in the day when you actually looked at the newspaper to see what the clothing <laughs> price was. I know a lot of the millennial and and younger yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm with Jason. you. <laughs> Jason was reading the tape coming out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah so, Easy, so we buddy. Would, yeah. So, so we, would, we would actually sit there and, and look at, you know, what did our, our funds do? What did our stocks do? And he kind of, you know, uh, mentioned to me, he's like, you know so much about this. Maybe you should focus on the investment side of the financial world instead of the accounting side. And uh, I never thought much of it then. I, I continued on with college. Uh, and while I was in school, get, getting into deep loans and debt, because I didn't come from a family that had money. So I, I pretty much paid, worked three different jobs on campus while, while I was, uh, you know, going to school. And I sat there one day and I, and I said, you know, I don't really want to work for anyone. So I have two options. I can either go into making something, selling widgets where I need all this money and build a manufacturing firm and so forth, or I can go into the service industry. And what better uh, than going into something I'm actually passionate about? I was doing investments for my friends, for my family members, opening up Roth IRAs for them and just to help them out. So I'm like, I might as well get paid for what I'm doing. I'm 21. Uh, if, if I fail, worst case scenario, mom and dad will take me back home. Uh, and I was at UCSB at the time. So I was there for a couple of quarters in Santa Barbara and I left school. I dropped out, uh, got mm -hmm. the opportunity to go to Sun America Securities. They helped me get licensed, do all the things. And I was there for a couple of years before I realized this is just a sales job and I wanted to focus mm -hmm. on the financial planning side of things. So I left there in uh, 99, went to American Express Financial Advisors, which is the Ameriprise of today. I was there for a number of years, uh, grew the firm, and I knew that as we were growing organically and, and, and I was working with a number of other advisors as part of our group, I wanted to start doing acquisitions. But Ameriprise wasn't the right place to do that. You needed to be independent. A lot of the people that wanted to sell their practices, you know, or were other groups or other brokers, and they're like, we don't want our clients necessarily going to uh, Ameriprise or, or to a captive audience. So we decided to leave uh, and start our firm at LPL Financial in 2003. So we went independent. Uh, I started Shalakian Wealth Management, which was what, what the name of the firm was at the time. Uh, years later, I decided to take my name off the door because I didn't want it to be about me. I wanted it to be about the people. I wanted it to also be about growing the firm because, you know, that's something we could talk about today. A lot of times mm -hmm. you see people put their names on the door, but then it becomes an ego issue. And, and I don't have an ego. You know, I, I wanted to be the first one to say, rip that name off the door. We don't need that. I want people to want to come here and feel welcome 
and want to work with the team. So we were at uh, we were at LPL from 2003, uh, and 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 then eventually in 2014 went hybrid uh, under their platform, started the RIA, uh, and and then uh, earlier last year. Uh, I don't even know what it is. April last year, I decided to drop my securities license. So, you know, just focusing on the RIA side. And along the way, we've done a number of acquisitions. We've completed uh, seven acquisitions, uh, you know, uh, throughout the, the time period. And once I, the first one I did was in, uh, in 2008. And, and once I got kind of the taste of it, I realized what to do. Uh, we made a lot of mistakes, but we just kind of ironed all that stuff out. We did another one in 2009 and, and so on and so forth. Excellent. Why, why do you, like, just curious, why did you decide to grow with acquisition versus grow organically? I mean, you have, a, you have limited resources. You could take one route of it or the other. What made it more attractive for you to go down the acquisition path? You know, it's, it's, it's like a quick shot in the arm. Uh, but it, it comes at a price, right? So if you don't have the infrastructure and if you're not set up for it, it could be a disaster. You can buy a practice and let's say you're, you're a solopreneur, you don't really have a staff or a team. You all of a sudden went from having your existing 100 clients to now you bring on 100 new clients, you doubled overnight, but that doesn't mean that you can't service those people as well as your existing clientele. So there's the pros and cons. Uh, but one of the things I noticed is real quickly, you can grow, you can expand. Uh, and it was a good diversifier for us as opposed to just the organic growth. And one of the things that uh, a lot of advisors will ask me is like, well, when should I consider an acquisition? And kind of what I will usually look at them and tell them is like, besides market fluctuations, if your firm is growing organically 20, 25%, then don't even think about necessarily doing an acquisition it could probably become more of a pain in the butt than it's worth. Uh, but if you're not, then you need to look at acquisitions as an option. Because in, in this industry, as you guys realize, if you're not growing, you're probably dying. So we looked at acquisitions as one way to start creating a little bit of a bigger group, bring in other advisors to work with those uh, client relationships. Uh, you know, succession planning was something that I've been talking about since 2008, 2009. Uh, the, the first... The first practice I bought actually was from an advisor that literally was hit by a bus, went into a coma. A week later, he passed away. And, you know, on one hand, his wife had to figure out his funeral arrangements. And on the other hand, she had to figure out who was going to be his successor. He was an elderly gentleman. Uh, he was actually going to retire the year after. Oh and he, he had not planned anything. You know, I mean, it's, it's always <laughs> ironic how much little planning advisors do we do it for others but we don't do it for ourselves so um he guilty yeah no, look we're all guilty right you know no, it's, it's crazy like, like we the like, shoemaker that's got most a advisors i know still haven't gotten their uh their wills done with right. their newborns you know it takes them three to five years before they start doing that type of stuff it it really is uh cobbler's uh, uh cobbler's children go barefoot exactly we, so it is so super important it's, it's, it's interesting to see that. So we had the conversation and just imagine the timing. This was December of 2008. Okay. This, this gentleman had had 35 plus years in the industry, had helped his clients grow their assets. Now, all of a sudden he passes away. Markets are melting down. People don't know if the world's going to come to an end. Is the dollar going to be worth anything anymore? And, and, 
an individual saw their retirement assets get slashed into half. So, and all of a sudden the new guy shows up, right? So now they got to be like, who's this guy? What happened to Don? Uh, you know, I mean, I had meetings where people were crying, were crying because they spent the last 20, 30 years with this man and he took care of them. And now there's this young kid that's going to have to try to fill these big shoes. And, mm -hmm. and it was tough. It was tough. So we had to be very careful in how we handled it. We had to console them. We had to hold their hands. We had to explain them the situation that was going on. And part of them, they were grieving and a lot, and the other half of them were trying to figure out what they did with their assets. So it was, it was all hands on deck. And that was our first experience. So after that, I learned like, okay, we got to, if we're going to go down this route, we got to bring in more team members. We got to set up our uh, uh, organization to be able to go remotely, to be able to be, uh, you know, scalable. And that was one of the things that we started to implement right away. Kind of the, if you build it, they will come type of situation. And uh, after that, we were able to get another acquisition and another acquisition and kind of just, uh, you know, started to so steamroll from there. What does that look like right now? Tell me a little bit about the organization, the, the team. What's what's the team look like, and what are the roles, and and how much has changed recently? Yeah, so we've had a lot of changes over the last couple of years. I would say, unfortunately, I was in a bad partnership, uh, you know, and and then ended that a couple of years back. Uh, so kind of the disbanding of what happened there uh, split the firm up a little bit, uh, and not in a legal manner. Uh, you know, my ex partner mm -hmm. literally started stealing clients. And uh, we had to go through a whole arbitration, which was another crazy thing altogether. But uh, with with that individual, I was able to do three different acquisitions. And uh, so we we brought all these firms on. And then after after yeah. a while, it became uh, and, and we did them all over the place. So uh, uh, we bought a practice in Pasadena and then we bought another practice up in Las Vegas, which we already had another practice out. So it was easy. It was, you know, kind of go out there to meet with clients. And then we had an, and then we purchased another one up in Napa. Uh, you know, that, again, my wife loves wine. So she's like, oh, I'd love to <laughs> be able to retire up there or whatever the case yeah. is and, and have a small practice. So what ended up happening was Alex was on a plane. You know, I did meetings on Mondays in uh, Pasadena in Los Angeles, got on a plane Tuesday, uh, Wednesday was in Las Vegas, Thursday, Friday in, in Napa, and then kind of went back and forth while he basically sat uh, at the office and played uh, mind, uh, whatever, you know, some game on his computer. So yeah. the, right. the, prob the problem became, you know, when I had to have the come to Jesus moment with him and say, hey, listen. I can't be flying around and doing all these meetings while you sit here and play solitaire on your computer. And then that just, that just started to crumble the relationship. And, 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 and then it was both of our faults. We, as much as I tried to set the responsibilities and set, set up uh, what needs to be done from the get go, it, it, it just never came to fruition. So if you're going to build a team, it's important that everyone knows what their roles are and they stick to that. So it, it was a lesson learned. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I've made a lot of mistakes. I made a ton of mistakes over the years, over the 23 years that I've been in the industry, but I'm trying to learn from those mistakes as well as, you know, through my advisors unite platform is try to make sure that other advisors don't make those mistakes as well. And that's where we kind of talk about pros and cons and tips of acquisitions. Yeah. So, so you mentioned, just, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to ask uh, in your earlier point, you were mentioning uh, the emotional roller coaster that you can have sometimes with clients. And so it just, uh, I think most people aren't really aware of the 
psychologist role that a lot of advisors need to play. So it's part strategist, part psychologist. So the, the behavioral side of things is equally, if not more important, sticking to portfolios, understanding people's tracking errors and biases. So how do you think about that in, in the context of your, of your practice? It's, it's more important. I would say it's a lot more important because as much as if I sit with a client, at the end of the day, they're a human. I can talk to them about performance numbers and charts and all of this, but if I can't connect with them on an emotional level, it's, it's over. They're going to look to go somewhere else because at the end of the day, you know, a lot of stuff, whether it be us or some, somewhere else, it could be commoditized, right? So they're going to look at us and say, who can I connect with? This is a person that's going to hold my hand and take this journey with me for the next 10, 20, 30 years. I, do I want them in my life? Do they really get me? Do they understand my family, my situation? Or are they more of the technical side where they're going to say, here you go. Here's the chart. This is what it looks like. Good luck. Uh, we outperform the benchmarks and, uh, you know, uh, whoop de doo So, so I, I mean, listen, there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want to do. Uh, but those people w- are not going to stay with you just because you outperform the benchmarks as much as you think that's what it is. But there is the element of greed. We have we have to be honest. People are looking about their their numbers and they say, hey, if, if you're doing a good job, as much as you're quirky, I'll stick with you. I mean, just think about some of the professionals you guys work with, maybe other accountants, attorneys, and so forth. You might say they're, they're not the funnest people to hang around with, but they get the job done or I trust them or they were a good referral. But if you find a, an attorney that you can really relate with and gets you and, and is someone that you want to go and grab a beer with possibly, right, then you're going to say that's the person I want to stick with and work with for a long time. So, Alex, just how do you think about that perspective of giving them the personal touch as you grow a business larger, right? You, you, you're going to have, I imagine, through acquisition, a slightly more, a slightly larger client base per touch, I would yeah. imagine. So how do you augment your your personal touch through other means if, so, if that indeed is your, your growth plan? You know, time is a factor, right? We all have the same amount of time. It doesn't matter whether it's me or Warren Buffett. It, it, it doesn't really matter. It's just how you kind of utilize that time. So one of the things that I started to do early on was utilize different tools, technology to try to minimize some of those times, whether it be a rebalancer, whether it be financial planning tools, whether it be risk analysis tools, uh, you know, portfolio tools, whatever it is, a lot of that stuff we started to adopt early on. So we can, uh, you know, focus less time on that and more on the relationships. But that being said, it's, it's, it's a tough thing to do. I mean, you have to make sure that if, if, again, if you went from hundred relationships to 200 relationships, you got to be ready to say, okay, I need to bring someone else on to help with those relationships. I can't just be greedy and say that I'm going to have all 200 relationships. I'm not going to share the wealth type of attitude. And unfortunately, a lot of advisors have that. They just kind of say, oh, I could do this. What's another 100 new households? And then all of a sudden, not only are the new 100 households not happy with the service that you're, they're getting, but your existing 100 households might be now going out the door. And, and that happens. It's going to happen. So you got to make sure you can have those uh, you know, tools in place and have the right team, which is also tough. I've experienced a lot of uh, team members that have kind of come and gone. They were not the right fit for us. So we, we've got to make sure that you find the right people. And, and once you find the right person, hold on to them tight. Make sure they're compensated appropriately. Make sure you are able to give them equity in the firm. You know, that's another thing that's very tough for a lot of advisors. If they, if they grew the firm for 30 years, they're like, this is my baby. I don't want to give this up. 
but then they shoot themselves in the foot because what happens is at the end of the day, they don't have a succession plan and their assets dwindle away. And they might look at it as, okay, this is better than the social security or another pension plan. Uh, you know, I'll just hold on to this for as long as possible and while I'm healthy, but those clients are not getting served properly. You know, they're being, they're being selfish in that manner. They got to find someone. Well, it's, who, it's the ego the that you generation. mentioned, right? You, you talked about the ego. I think the advisor, um, we've seen in, in our careers, Jason and I, a lot of ego in that space. And mm-hmm. I remember when I started managing the asset management side of the business and less on the private wealth, one of the key issues was like, look, whomever I'm going to give this, 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 uh, relationship too is not going to do it as well as I can, but maybe they'll do 80% as well as I did. It turns out that they they do a better job because they're more motivated. They have more time and they actually, you know, have a completely different connection. There, there really is, there was that gap where I felt really, it was really tough for me to even contemplate or accept. And this, I give credit to Mike Philbrick on this, where he, you know, giving opportunities to younger advisors within your, your practice, give them the shot, have a couple of introductory sessions, you with them. And what I have found is what that whatever fear I had, whatever ego I had involved in that relationship was false. And uh, and, and if you want to grow your business, that's that's what you have to do. Right. You have to be able to delegate. And I agree with you. You get the right partner, you get the right employee, you hold on to them tight. It's funny. So I brought this book along because I thought it might be helpful for your audience. It's not by me. It's by. Uh, Dan Sullivan and Dr. Benjamin Hardy. It's called Who Not How. I don't know if you guys have read it. If you haven't, if you're an advisor, if you're a business person, whatever it is, grab this book. It's fantastic. It's going to help you understand how to grow your firm, how to bring on the right people. Because ultimately, as entrepreneurs, a lot of times when we're trying to solve a problem, whatever it may be, and I know Raul asked the question here, we think about how do I do this? The question shouldn't be how do you do it? It's like, who is the person that you need to get to help do that? And that's what you need to do. And that's what you need to find. And it's tough. It, you might have to go through one, two, three, four people before you find that right person that is going to take the take the lead. You know, you kind of, whether you want to pass the baton fully or not, but they're going to take the lead and run with it. And you're actually, you're absolutely right, Rodrigo. You, I think it's a lot of ego thing. They're like, oh my God, no one else could do a better job than me. And then you come to find out your clients are actually very happy. They're clicking and they know that they're easier to get a hold of. Uh, you know, they're very responsive. Uh, they're a little bit more tech savvy than you are or whatever the case is. And, and they enjoy that relationship. They like knowing that I'm here or I'm behind the scenes and I'm still working with them, you know, with that advisor. Uh, and if they need to, I can jump in or if there's something that's a little bit more complicated, estate planning wise or tax planning that maybe this advisor is not as uh, seasoned on, I, I can I can jump in there. But why don't we look at it the same way as law firms do? You know, you see you see the partners level, you see the attorneys, uh, you know, and then associates and clerks and so forth. I mean, if we kind of try to mirror that in our industry, it would work, but we don't. It's always like a solo practitioner trying to do everything, wearing a multiple hats and then before you know it, it just turns into a failure. Or I mean, yeah. so I uh, I've, uh, I've been the strategic coach for years with Dan Sullivan, and uh, I'm a huge fan of anything he produces. And he's so into just understanding your own unique ability, mm-hmm. and most importantly, understanding what you're not strong at or what really pulls the juice out of you. And it's important in a team to try to determine. Um, you know, who fits best where. And sometimes you may be surprised uh, for yourself, you're better off in a different spot than uh, than you thought you were. Uh, and it's, it's a key factor with any team. 
And it's perfect that you said that because the unique ability is what makes a big difference. And, and maybe this also helps out, Raul, is, you know, I kind of realized my unique ability was more of the relationship aspect, working with the clients, talking to them, helping them come on to the firm. But my unique ability wasn't necessarily sitting there and doing the financial planning behind the scenes. We mm-hmm. can find someone, a team member that maybe doesn't want to be client facing, but would rather be back there crunching the numbers, getting all that stuff ready. Uh, and so, you got to team up with them and going, you know, is even if that means I make less money, let's say on the client, right. Or I share that revenue. I'd rather get 50% of something than 0% of something. So, and also I think, you know, if I, if I were to, from an external point of view, look at your fortes, I think you have thought outside the box and, and just the way you communicate on social media, how you bring, your community, your California community, you bring them in, you give back to that community, you, you let know that community that you're helping them out. You talk about your, your you're bringing people inside your home so that they know the type of values that you espouse. I think that that is really rare for any advisor uh, that I've ever seen. And that requires a, an entrepreneurial point of view. It requires some deep work that has you completely away from the business at times and for you to be able to do that to come up with those ideas to really move the business forward you have to be able to delegate you have to be able to delegate and to the point of um of you know finding your unique ability as resolve has grown and watered up and brought new people into the firm you know i started being everything to to i was the advisor i was the the psychologist i was the uh the trader i was everything and slowly giving away those pieces i gotta tell you audience every single time i gave away part i felt like i was cutting off a part of my body and yet you end up landing in your sweet spot and i think in terms of partnership i also had prior to meeting these these gents I had a partner that uh, didn't, it didn't go well. And the reason it didn't go well is because I partnered with him because he was an, an identical personality to mine. I thought, if I'm good at this, then we are gonna, we're just going to crush this, um, this business. But it turns out you end up doing the same job. There's too much overlap. If I had one piece of advice in terms of partnering up is make sure that you're partnering with people that are very different from you, complementary, so that they're not stepping in each other's toes. Right. And it's very common in in the asset management business. Right. Having too many cooks in the kitchen. Right. So and it happens. It happens. Everyone's kind of like, oh, I want to play that role. And it's like, well, maybe there is not enough business to play that role. And we need to each kind of, uh, you know, divide and conquer. And and it's tough. It's tough to find that person, which is why I think finding that individual, if you do, make sure you take care of them. Make sure they understand that they are as important to the firm as you are. And, you know, and, and that's tough for a lot of advisors to do. Mm-hmm. It's tough for anybody to do. And, and the, the, I mean, you got to manage money, you got to manage people, and you got to manage the business in, in this world. And all three of them require less overlap than you might think. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Alex, I kind of wanted to shift gears slightly, but still within the, the topic of behavioral, but bringing it from the abstract to the tangible, I guess. You're like 2020, one of the most... Like in living memory, it's hard to, to think of a more uh, roller coaster year in, in, in markets. How was the the stick to itness for for clients and their portfolios, and how how are you able to, to to kind of thread that line when it comes to 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 clients freaking out maybe in Feb March and then kind of wanting to maybe go back all in in equities, depending on how you guys reposition. How did that play out? 
It's funny you you mentioned 2020 and two of us grabs a, a drink right away just just hearing that <laughs> right right uh, Pavlovian for yes, sure. it just triggered it right away. Uh, so look, it's it was very difficult not only as an individual investor but also for professional investors. So it's you know we all know greed and fear is what runs the markets and and. One of the things that we've done, especially a lot of our clients are older, a little bit more conservative. They're not necessarily looking to kind of juice the portfolios. Uh, one of the conversations we had late last year and early this year was to start trimming within the portfolios. Uh, in February, when I started paying attention to what was happening with the virus uh, overseas, I knew that this wasn't something that was just going to be a joke and stay there like it did you know, with some of the other viruses from the past. Uh, you know, was I lucky? Yes. Uh, but I, I kind of being in the industry for a long time, you start to say, OK, I don't know how this is going to play out. So let's do something. Let's uh, let's take that into consideration. And part of our portfolios, um, you know, I don't necessarily buy into you have to be either all active or all passive. We have a blend of things. And then we also have a blend within the different areas. So whether it be in fixed income or equity or alternatives. Um, so we started to Take some money off the table in on the equity space. Uh, you know, I didn't re, I didn't realize we would see that type of a quick V-shaped recovery, uh, but we but we did. So we didn't experience as much of the downside. But then we started to kind of come back a little bit back into the markets. So you know, I don't want to say necessarily we dollar cost average. Uh, that wasn't necessarily what we did. But when we saw opportunities, we shifted back into some of the equities that we had taken off. So we didn't. I guess we took out the choppiness, you know, we kind of tried to help smooth out the ride. And, and that was something that I did years ago when uh, in 2006, 2007, we started talking to clients like, this is crazy. You know, when, when your neighbor's telling you that they're on their fifth house that they're buying and they're leveraging to buy another property, I literally told my dad, sell your house. We're getting out of here. Like we, I had him sell his property. I'm like, you're never going to get this amount of money again for the rest of your life on this house. And we, and we started talking to clients about this, uh, some of the concerns that we had. And were we early? Yeah, we were early, but I would rather be early to the party than late. Uh, and, and we started to transition. We had kind of more of a core satellite model back then. And we blew out of all the satellites. We held on to our core position, which was about 30, 40% of the portfolio. You know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And we'll hold on to it. But we blew out of the satellites that had a lot of emerging markets and foreign debt and so forth. And that worked out for us. And we doubled that year because clients were, you know, a lot of clients were thanking us and talking to their friends that were losing their shirts and saying, hey, you know what? You should talk to my advisor. Uh, he explained to us what he was doing. A lot of clients fought with me. I'll be honest. They fought with me. They're like, what are you talking about? Markets can't go down. They only go up. They, you know, they only they only look at the upside of things. And, and we had to explain to them what we were trying to do. And especially if they were going to be retiring anytime soon, you know, people don't think about that. So if our clients, if going back to 2020, a lot of them are either existing, uh, retired or about to retire. This is their nest egg. So we had to be, you know, we had to have a, a, a pragmatic approach to it and explain what we're doing. And, and the communication is key with clients, even if you're wrong, because you're going to be wrong a lot. Uh, you want to explain to them kind of the, the logic behind it. And most clients thanked us for what we did. Uh, and and it also depends on their time frame, right? So it's different if you're investing with me and you have a three-year time frame where you say, I'm going to need this money or access it in three years, as opposed to I got a 20, 30-year time horizon. If it dips down and comes back up, who cares? I'm not really taking advantage of it. 
Uh, well, that's we, an interesting point. Communication, it, we've always found it very difficult to communicate singularly mm-hmm. a single message when you have tiered client bases, right? So I know that you do a newsletter for your, for your advisory practice. How do you deal with communication? What do you, what do you handle on your, communica- your, your email communication? What do you handle personally? And is there a difference? So the, there is a difference. Uh, you know, the newsletter is a little bit more generic in nature because of what you just pointed out. Everyone's situation is a little bit different. Everyone's risk tolerance and time frame is a little bit different. So we kind of con- convey to them what our overall thought is, but that might not particularly hit what they're doing. So if, if I'm talking about, okay, we're getting back into the markets today, blah, 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 in the newsletter, but then you're a client that is in sitting in munis because you really want no stock exposure whatsoever. It's not, it's not going to, right. It's not going to make sense. So, so then it goes to the communication to that individual client of saying your situation is a little bit different. This is what we're doing before those clients that are maybe longer time horizon or want exposure in the markets that would, that would work for them. So um, it'll be interesting how this turns out because one of the things, one of my goals this year is to have this type of communication with our existing clients, something where I can do a YouTube live stream and have clients now log in, be able to communicate with them, answer the questions on the side and, and, and be able to do it that way. Or now with Zoom, right? I can hold a Zoom meeting and invite 100 clients to it. It might be a little bit uh, crazy, but almost hold like a town hall on a quarterly basis and, and kind of get an idea of what they're doing ask, uh, let them ask questions. Some people are not going to get into the weeds because they don't want their personal information uh, out in the open that they'll discuss that to you one-on-one, but there could be some questions that they have, like how is the elections going to uh, affect my portfolio? Should I be concerned that the Democrats won the Senate or whatever, you know, so this type of stuff. Uh, I think, I think having this type of a medium is, is good. And, And that is my goal this coming year where I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm also going to set up a community an online community for my clients to be able to join where they'll be able to log in and I can record a video or do it live and tell them what my thoughts are, whether you want to do it on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, whatever it is. And then they could communicate within that community and know that it's secure as opposed to it being on Facebook or, or some other social media platform where they're going to say, I don't know who's reading this. I don't know who's seeing this. I don't need anyone else knowing my business. So it'll become more of a secure tool. And I'm working on building that this year. So you kind of touched uh, on your previous model, uh, Core Satellite for Holdies. Are you willing to kind of give us a little bit more of how you're currently uh, engaging in that framework for portfolio building? Do you tier it with regards to risk tolerance? And and do you also consider the the, uh, particular tracking error biases that people have in order to build that portfolio for them for starts? Yeah, so uh, it all starts with the client's risk. You know, we have our models uh, and then we have to take into consideration what they have as well existing. So if you come to me with a portfolio and, you know, you've got a ton of stock from the next company and, and that has huge amount of gains, I can't just tell you, oh, we're blowing all out of this tomorrow. Uh, you know, there's tax consequences there. It's a little bit different if it's in a retirement account and so forth. So we're going to take all that into consideration and look at the big picture, but we'll start with the risk as well as their time frame and what they're looking to do. And then from there, we will, we have different types of models based on their asset sizes. So we have 
our core portfolio that is made up majority of ETFs. And that usually is for accounts that are below 250,000. And then on uh, above the 250,000 threshold is our strategic portfolio. That is a combination of individual equities, ETFs, uh, bonds, funds. So uh, kind of we'll, we'll see what's the best of uh, best choice in that space and, and, we'll, uh, and we'll do that. But the strategic portfolio, whether it be on a monthly basis or if there's an action, we'll make the strategic changes there and we can go out, blow out of sectors or, or countries or whatever it may be. Uh, but the core portfolio is more of a rebalancer, kind of like as clients are building their wealth, we'll, we'll, that will be the space for them. Just, I've always found it interesting, the different types of advisors and what they lead with when trying to gather clients. A lot of them, old school traders, lead with how they trade. Some lead with financial planning. Others lead with you know a combination of both. Where do you see the hierarchy of, of needs? Or at least, where do you see the hierarchy of, of what how you sell and, and gather organic clients? So when I moved over to American Express Financial Advisors, one of that shift, one of the reasons why I shifted over in 99 is I realized that I don't want to sell products. I don't want that to be the leading conversation. Hey, buy my mutual fund because it's better than your mutual fund. Uh, you know, that, that was just, that was not the way I saw the industry going. Uh, I wanted to focus on advisory and I wanted to focus on financial planning. So financial planning is still a big focus for us, but the investment world has changed a lot. And you guys will probably see this, whether it be the Robin Hoods of the world or whatever else it may be, that communication, that conversation has changed where people now are saying, okay, I get it. Financial planning. Yeah, I got to do it. But I really just want to start investing. I just really want to start saving. Now, it's if they're doing it for greed purposes and you know, they're, they're, and they're just like, I, I see this stock going higher and higher and I just, I need to get in. That's something different. You need to calm them down and and talk them off the ledge. And sometimes you can't. I mean, it's just it, they're going to do what they're going to do, right? And and unfortunately, some of those people have to learn by their mistakes and uh, and and hopefully change that behavior down the line. But for those that realize, okay, yes, I I do want to do this investment, but it, you have the conversation of why do you want to have that investment? What what's the purpose behind it? Well, you know, I really I don't have anything saved up for retirement. Okay, so maybe we should set up a retirement account and then you can do those types of things in there, not necessarily in a traditional brokerage account or or an online account or whatever it is. So so we want to have that conversation. But my point of bringing this up is I realize that our industry is kind of going like this. You know, you're going to either as and, and you guys maybe aren't necessarily on the advising side right now. We're working with, uh, uh, you know, the public, but. If you are, you're you're going to have to start going further and further up the ladder. I think you're going to have to start working with clients that are a little bit more technical in nature, are going to need more, or have more complicated tax uh, needs, have more complicated estate needs. And, you know, if you were saying, oh, you know, we don't take clients under a million dollars, now you might have to come back and say, we don't take clients under $10 million. So I think we're heading in that direction. But what happens there? What about the rest of the investors that are out? They're going to get left behind. And unfortunately, just like we're seeing right now with the middle class, I kind of see that happening in our industry. Um, so you're going to have to come out with the other option, which could be for the clients that are maybe that are to do it yourselfers, but need some sort of advice. You know, maybe they don't want to necessarily go to YouTube and get some free advice or go on to TikTok uh, that some guy's yelling at the screen and saying, hey, you should buy this and you should do that. And look, I made a thousand percent in these options. 
they don't want that either. They want to know they can go somewhere and get some decent advice, but maybe they want to do it themselves. So I think you need to provide that service. And that's the other thing we're working on launching this year as well, where we're going to be able to provide that side. Now, if they have more complicated stuff and they need to talk to an advisor, that platform will allow them to either pay on an hourly basis and talk to a CFP, or if they get to a situation where they have graduated, let's say from there, then they can now start working with Lake Avenue Financial where they'll have a lot more direct one-on-one. So so I think this industry is totally going to go into two different directions and either you're going to be part of that wave or it's just going to crash on you. Very interesting. Yeah, I I see the same thing. Uh, There's a lot of advisors now taking $10 million as a minimum ticket um, and, and lots of people are being left behind. But there are a lot of there are a lot of really good tools and some great education. Um, but it, it uh, there's still a pocket in the middle there where people don't want to to dive into the great details of, of a budget. Budgets are the like the the raw material to make all this work. You want to save money, well, you should know what are you making, what are you spending exactly every month. Yeah, I- and a lot it's, of people just don't do that, but it's no, it, it's hard. Yeah. I still have clients that have millions of dollars that don't want to do budgeting. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I've had to have this conversation with them year after year, even when we give them the tools and the financial planning. And it's like, just link your credit card to this. Like, oh, this is all we got to do. We'll get all the information or your bank account and we'll, we'll figure yeah. it out. It's it, they, they would rather jump off a bridge. Like it's mm-hmm. just, it's not something that's fun for them. But you said something interesting because we've kind of prided ourselves for not necessarily having account minimums. You know, there's certain types of accounts because of where they're at might have a sort of a minimum, but I've tried to work with all types of clients, you know, and that could be to the detriment of you end up having a lot more clients than you necessarily want. Uh, but I don't, I'm not the type that's going to say, no, you don't have a million dollars. We don't want to talk to you. And I understand why advisors do that. Uh, but if, but I might have a client that comes in or a prospective client that comes in and can have five, 10, $15 million. But if they're totally rude, I don't want to work with them. Right. I would much rather with, work with the person that's got, you know, $45,000, but they respect my time. They respect my team and they, and they, t- you know, they value what we're saying. I, I would rather work with them and help them out. So that's been something that I've done. And whether it be, you know, giving back to the community or other stuff. It's like, I feel like this I, financial literacy wise, I rather teach these individuals, uh, you know, what to do with their money and make sure they're not taken advantage of. Unfortunately, a lot of the times people, uh, whether it be, you know, a, a language barrier or something else, they get taken advantage of whether it's in my, the Armenian community or, you know, my wife is Mexican in the Mexican community. Uh, you know, that happens a lot as well. Uh, you know, she will talk to them today. She had a conversation with uh, someone that inherited the estate and he he's pretty much speaks Spanish and has no idea what to do. Right. So, you know, it's, it's easy for Rosa to, to get on the phone, talk to him, make him understand what needs to be done. Uh, and, and he right away, he felt a lot more comfortable than talking to someone and having that language barrier. So it's it's interesting uh, in how that works. Yeah. Yep. So I, I kind of want to get back to uh, the advisor practice, uh, specifically on the communication side. You use a lot of platforms to communicate your thoughts and your views: Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, your own website, YouTube. Have you found one platform to be more useful from an advisor perspective, practice perspective, than others? And and then this, the follow up question to that will be compliance. How do you deal yeah. with that? 
Yeah, just, uh, it depends on what you're looking for, right? So if you're going to Twitter and thinking that it's going to turn into generating a lot of business, you might be wasting your time. Uh, Twitter is a great place for me to be able to meet individuals like yourselves, uh, you know, talk to people in my community, learn from them, help out others. Uh, so I, I like that FinTwit community. It's been helpful for that. Another great thing is I kind of look at uh, Twitter as the yellow uh, white pages. You know, remember that thing that used to be hanging like, the, uh, you know, from the uh, phone booths? Barely. Right. Uh, but think about it that way. I have access to people I would have never had access to. And because of that, I've been able to connect with reporters, CEOs and so forth. A lot of them have followed me. We, we can DM each other. I don't need to even have their phone numbers. I don't need to text them. I don't need to email them. It's direct communication. Twitter has been able to provide that. And, and it's been very, very powerful. Um, we also utilize Facebook to an extent for on uh, for Lake Avenue Financial. Now, that that's a great way to be able to connect to more of the, the general public, put videos out there, put content out there, and so forth. Um, Instagram is something we started to utilize a little bit now. I'm still trying to kind of put my head around how does that work best. Uh, LinkedIn is fantastic. Uh, you know, I have a big following on LinkedIn and I'm not saying that to brag, but it took me many, many years to get there. And that's also a great way of connecting to professionals in our industry, as well as professionals outside of our industry. And then that's you been- find that LinkedIn has like, how do you work with LinkedIn? Cause you can post, but there's also this, the, the publisher, right. That right. seems to be quite useful. Like what right. aspect of LinkedIn as a, has, is unique enough that has been your biggest growth and what does it allow you to do that other platforms don't? So it's interesting. You kind of have to post things differently on the different platforms. And I don't know if you guys do that or not, but I, I, I traditionally do, uh, you know, like I'm not going to post a picture, a, a cat video on LinkedIn. Maybe I'll put that on Instagram or Facebook. Right. But, but, uh, so everyone kind of does these things, but going back to your question, um, LinkedIn's publisher is something that I've considered utilizing. Um, I haven't really, I I've done a couple of posts on there, which have been, you know, have gotten real good feedback, but you kind of go back to, do I want to be controlled by this platform? Is it better for me to sure. blog on our platform and then send people to our blog so I can kind of control that as opposed to be at the mercy of the algorithms? And I'll give you a perfect example. So we used to have a lot more traction on Facebook of being able to do things. And then all of a sudden they changed the algorithms and it was over. All of a sudden, you know, 90% drop off of the type of engagement we used to get from the same amount of posts. So do you, do you keep doing that or do you say, okay, I got to change this and, and do it somewhere else? But now you're starting to see, especially when it comes to videos, like I, I post a lot of videos on Twitter and whether it be the bear in my backyard or whatever else, uh, people, people respond to that. And if I posted that video on YouTube and then put the YouTube link on Twitter, very little traction. But if I take the actual video and I put it on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn directly, it gets a lot of traction, you know? I'm, so, right. So any- that's, that's kind of the, the way the algorithms are trying to get, they, they want video for engagement, but they also have a particular way of you uploading that video. Correct. So that's, Correct. that's an interesting tip. Yeah. So you got to figure out where you want to build your community, right? Whether you want to build your community here on YouTube, then you might focus and put your efforts on YouTube. Uh, if you want to build your community on Twitter or Facebook or whatever platform, then that's where I would put my focus on. But I think you also need to kind of control that content so you can do both, which is what we've done. We can we can put the blog, uh, uh, you know, on our uh, 
on our website, but then we can also put it directly on LinkedIn or whatever the case is to try to get eyeballs there. Uh, and, and you experiment with it. And that's what I've done. And over the course of the years, I've done multiple experiments. To this day, I still do experiments on Twitter. I'll put a post just to see what kind of response it'll get, what kind of results it will get. And I track the engagement and all of that afterwards to say, okay, I know that that really didn't work. Or this did work. Why did it work? And sometimes you and I might sit there and say, let me write this clever thing on Twitter and it gets nowhere. And then you write something stupid and all of a sudden it's getting retweeted and shared and people, and you're like, well, I spent no time on that. And all of a sudden people loved it and shared it. So it's totally random. Yeah. It, very so random. I, most advisors that I deal with are either unable because of who they work under to do any social media mm-hmm. or are terrified of the compliance repercussions required in order to be able to do what we do. How, how do you, what advice would you give to an advisor practice that's trying to think about social media and, uh, and compliance? Well, keeping in mind that this is for the US, right? I mean, it's gonna change from jurisdiction, but I think probably the US uh, regulatory uh, landscape is probably on the more draconian side of things. So if it applies there, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how it is in Canada as far as compliance is concerned. Uh, but one of the things to, to keep in mind is you want to know what those rules are. You don't want to go out there and get in trouble and all of a sudden your compliance department is, you know, slapping you with a fine or, or telling you you got to shut your Twitter account down and so forth. So if most of the independent broker dealers typically will allow you to use the three major ones, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Right you need to utilize some sort of a tool that allows them to capture the information and archive it, whether it be like an Arado or Zix or whatever. So, so as long as you put those things in there, it'll be able to do it, but find out what those rules are at your firm. You know, one of the major reasons why we went independent besides acquiring practices was because I kind of saw that we need to be able to have more freedom. Uh, you know, one of the big nightmares, and again, this is not to put down a mirror prize, but I recall many times I wanted, I had an idea, I had a marketing thing that I wanted to do. Uh, let's say it was, you know, uh, September and, and, and I'm saying, okay, it'll give me enough time. Uh, people are going to start worrying about their taxes and so forth. So let me start do a letter about tax planning and I would submit it to compliance. And then, you know, September would pass, October, November, December, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden they would respond to me in June saying we rejected it. It's like, well, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. It was, and, it, and it was all because they wanted to protect that blue box, the American Express box. So it was very hard for them. It was like you had to use their pre-prepared stuff or it was really tough for them to, to, to make an exception. Now, things have probably gotten lax since then, but that was one of the reasons why we went independent. And, and I push the envelope. I do other things that most even independent broker-dealers might not be comfortable with, which is one of the reasons why in April I dropped my securities license. It's like, okay, I don't have to worry about that. Now I just have to make sure my RIA is comfortable. As long as my CCO is comfortable with the stuff I'm doing, and sometimes they're not, uh, you know, I got to make sure that we're on the same page. Uh, as long as they're comfortable, we can we can push that through. I'm about to post a bear running through my backyard. Is that an A-OK? Or should <laughs> is, I, that, yeah. I is this like, considered oh. an outside business activity? Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when we were in Macquarie, uh, under the Macquarie umbrella, this is Macquarie Global based out of, based out of Australia. We, re- we have a pretty popular blog. In fact, when you looked at Macquarie Canada, our blog, our personal team's blog would pop up before the Macquarie logo. So we had more hits than anybody else in the organization and we published our yearly 
bold, confident, and wrong review. You know, analysts saying, we believe this to happen. By the end of 2021, we see these targets being hit. And every single time, generally speaking, the vast majority were wrong. And for some reason this year, they wouldn't, they, that particular year, they weren't approving it. Get on a conference call, try to get on a conference call with Sydney, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And then it leaks that they had at the same time that we were planning on publishing our piece, Macquarie was going to publish their global outlook. And, you know, we were getting, if they were going to, any, anybody was going to do an organic search, they were going to find us before their, their outlook. And that was it. We couldn't publish it. And that was one of the major reasons why we got out of there, right? Yeah, I'm I mean, unless, unless your you're on there saying ridiculous things, and there's a ton of people that do this, like on Twitter, that we probably see, you know, I just end up uh, kind of rolling my eyes or saying, oh, man, that's not good. You know, I don't know who's going to uh, get, you know, whether it be their compliance or the Twitter police or whatever it may be. Uh, some people get away with it. And unfortunately, other advisors look and say, well, they were able to do it. Why can't I do it? Uh, so that, that becomes an issue and, and every firm is a little bit different. So definitely talk to your, uh, you know, compliance officer, your CCO, whatever it may be, and figure out what those rules are and, and stay within those boundaries. Also, it's tough for people to work on different platforms, you know, kind of maybe find out what you're trying to accomplish. If your thought is the only reason I'm interested in, let's say, social media is to, to uh, you know, to get clients, to use it as a prospecting tool, then then maybe you got to go to one platform as opposed to the others. If you're saying, I like coming here because I like community and I want to learn things and share and so forth, it, maybe you go to a different platform. So figuring that out, I think, is real important because people just say, oh, I want to start something. And then they have no idea what to do. And then, and then they're wondering, yeah. why don't I have followers? It's like, well, you're, it's just interesting. interesting. <laughs> you know, you can tell right away who the social media accounts are with where, when it's been overly reviewed and you're just towing the line, right? Nobody, nobody cares about uh, what your company by a committee feels about um, at all, right? What they care about is authenticity, being genuine, your personality, right? right? This is, I think, what, what show the people that I like in, in the advisor space on Twitter and LinkedIn, they just, they're... They're putting themselves out there. And it really is like 80% about who you are as a person, what your values are. And 20% have to do with, with the actual business that we're in. It doesn't need to be 100% financial. Right? And I right. think how you build a brand, how you build a following, how you, how you get your clients to continue to feel that they're in touch with you even when you've built your business successfully and you're not necessarily in touch with them as, they used, to, as you used to be when you only had two clients – that's how you do it. I think that's that's a part that's missing. You don't need to. Right. Absolutely so don't need to do that. It's 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 interesting uh, because a lot of times one of the top things I will hear, whether it be at a conference that I'm at, or you know even prospective clients, they say, "I feel like I already know you, and I've never met you in person before." Right. Whether it be through social media, whether it be because they watched a video of me or whether they feel like they got invited into my house when they saw Rosa posting something or whatever it may be. Right. So that that part is very, very important. And, and you have to mix it up. So look at even Mike's, uh, you know, um, Twitter posts. He might be putting some stuff for Resolve, but then he's he has a picture of himself and his wife, you know, for New Year's or whatever the case is. So, so, but again, you might not put that on LinkedIn, 
right? I would maybe put that on LinkedIn and try to keep it more professional in regards to that. And sometimes there might be personal um, things that I will want to share. Maybe it's uh, something that's important to me. Uh, like I, I shared this stuff with the community that we were doing and trying to give back. And, and that, that got, gets, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, people that are appreciate like share your value. Right. right. Exactly. Authenticity, authenticity sells for sure in a, in a sort of pasteurized and, and sort of cookie cutter world where there's so much of the same being authentic and just being yourself. It connects with people as you were saying earlier, and Alex. It also leads to the client base you want, right. And leads right, to the people right. you want to be surrounded by, you know, if you're selection if you're bias, selling, yeah, you're all, you're self selecting at the end of the day. Yeah, very true. Fun. Very true. I mean, if they've seen my posts, political posts, uh, you know, there's a certain yeah. political group that is not going to want to be my client. Uh, you know, and <laughs> and you got to you got to be careful. So there's the there's Green Party, some, isn't it? Yeah, it is. How did you know? But but at the end of the day, listen, it's up, it's up to you. I I chose to be uh, verbal about those types of things. Other people will just stay away from it and avoid it like the plague and say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to. Uh, you know, have a certain group feel like they're not welcome. I'm not saying they're, they're not welcome, but I want to be authentic and, and say, sure. if, if it's something that I think is important, I'm going to talk about it. Like that was funny enough. My 2021 New Year's resolution was I am not going to do any political posts. And it took six days. Like I was Every already one done. One of you guys <laughs> on Twitter that are political and say that, like you literally last two weeks. I don't think I've seen any one of you be like, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about politics anymore. It takes like, you just it's hard, it. man. It's hard. Especially in the US, right? Like you guys are all, there's a lot it's, of stuff to talk about. So before so we go up, that's very, very slippery slope. And, and, and we might choose oh, no. to go. I just want to ask uh, Alex in terms of whether it's trends in the industry or just projects that you're currently working on, what's gotten you excited? What, what are the things that you're sort of looking forward to after a crazy year that's gotten everybody reaching for the drinks when we mentioned 2020? What's 2021 and going forward uh, have in, in the crosshairs uh, for you in terms of projects, things that are getting you excited? Yeah, so the two projects that I was talking about is what I'm super excited about. Uh, these were things that I wanted to launch last year, but we had to kind of hold off uh, as as we let the dust settle and and it, trying to figure out you know our bearings of what we're going to do uh, right now. I've been working pretty much from home for almost a year now. Uh, very been very smooth. Our clients have had no issues with it. Uh, but the project that I'm working on will be more of the community for the clients that are you know, more of the do-it-yourselfer crowd. They want to learn. They want the resources and tools. That's something that we'll be launching soon. And, and I'll, I'll let you guys know more about that. And then also uh, you know, being able to have more of a presence online, something like this where we'll have a live stream show, uh, something where I could be able to touch uh, the community and talk to them and share ideas and, and so forth. So, so there's a lot of different stuff up in the air right now. Um, I got to make sure that I'm efficient with my time going back to what we talked about, right. Uh, you know, as, as kind of the leader in the, for the firm, being able to make sure I can focus on different things and, and, and nothing falls through the cracks and it's, it's tough. Uh, but if you find the right people to help out along the way, it makes it huge, huge difference. And how about on the disruption side of things? What are the things that you're sort of looking out for of, of potential risks or things that you need to keep up with? I mean, uh, the 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 buzzword today is blockchain distributed ledger stuff that can be disrupted by this upcoming technology. So, do you have any thoughts on there? And, and what are the things on your uh, on your radar? You know, this is this is another good conversation because you know 
maybe five, 10 years ago, we were talking, not maybe not 10, but five years ago, we were talking about the robo advisors, right? And is that going to put an end to advisors in general? But no, it was, it was a very glorified temp where we can utilize those tools and you can still offer the solutions, but it makes things efficient for you and so forth. But now looking at, there's the discussion of crypto and, and I would love to actually get uh, you know some of your thoughts if you guys are allowed to talk about it, uh, of where you kind of see where the crypto is going. But I think that needs to be a discussion as well with clients. Now, because of compliance, I haven't necessarily been able to talk to them about it, but I wanted to. Now we got to figure out what's the best way of doing that and discussing that this is just another separate asset class, or maybe they shouldn't consider an asset class and just forget about it altogether. Uh, that, that, that could be something that we need to discuss. And then lastly is the, you know, the conversation we see and we have amongst advisors. You know, if, if you're on Twitter, people are always discussing how should you be compensated? Is it asset-based management, you know, AUM versus financial planning fees versus, uh, you know, uh, monthly retainer fees? You know, part of that community that I want to build, I want it to be more monthly retainer model, but the monthly retainer model even I think has some uh, broken parts to it where if you're charging a client 300 bucks a month, 400 bucks a month, whatever it is, that might that puts you in a position where every month like an attorney I got to show what work I did for them, you know, kind of keep track of my hours and and most advisors don't want to do that. That's not what we got into the profession for. So, do you find a different way of doing it maybe at a much lower cost where it's more of a community basis, uh not, not necessarily selling a newsletter for a monthly fee or whatever, but something where they can there's value add and you give them the tools and the resources so they can do a lot of that stuff on their own. This is for the technical crowd that you were discussing, right? Those yeah. that are willing to kind of learn on their own and read and, and the like. Yeah. Uh, listen, I, l- if we think about the gym, right? I don't know if they're open in Canada or not, but they're not really open here in LA. Um, so think about the gym. If you work out, you go in there, there's two types of crowds for the most part. There's a crowd that's going to say, I want to go in here. I see the, 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 the machines and the tools. I know what to do. I'm going to do it on my own. Maybe I do it right. Maybe I do it wrong. Maybe I watched a YouTube video. Maybe I'm using an app to tell me what's the next exercise I should be doing. Then there's the other crowd that is either going to say, I want to step my game up and I need a trainer, right? To hold me accountable and to make sure I'm doing things right. Or I'm never going to show up to the gym if I don't have an appointment with a, a, a trainer. So, so there's those two crowds. And I think that will come into fruition in the financial industry where you can offer those types of services. You don't have to choose one or the other. Some advisors might. And they say, I'm just going to focus on being the trainer and charging for this for the serious people. And that's fine. Some are going to say, I want to be the, for working with the do-it-yourselfers or, or, or you know, more volume uh, in, in that regards. And then I want to be able to do both and give the clients uh, a choice. Like, do you want to be here? Do you want to be here? We offer both options. Very cool. Yeah. So if we talk about the crypto, I'm curious to what you guys think about this, because I think it's going to be very disruptive of our industry and it's going to be very tough, uh, you know, on the greed side of things, whether you believe it's an actual asset class where you actually think there's a store of value or whatever it may be. Um, how, how do you have that conversation with a client? Do you basically tell them, ignore it, it's the tulip mania and you got nothing to worry about, it's, you know, it's FOMO? Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts it's on it. It's been uh, a very uh, heated series of debates in the organization. We're certainly interested and we see that there's a ton of value. When Canada, Canada was the first public fund to launch 
um, just was it four Bitcoin, four Bitcoins mostly, four, four uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, and yeah. the main one being Bitcoin. Most of the people in the firm bought part of that because they believe in it. And so it, it is something that you can allocate to clients. Now, I'm not speaking for everybody else in here, but the way I've always seen that type of stuff in Canada, it's, it was always been something, right? It was either the oil and gas stocks in the mid knots. Uh, it was marijuana stocks recently. Now it's Bitcoin and Bitcoin. Can Canadians being the first to be able to invest in this type of stuff? To me, it's playing through an right ETF now. or through a public vehicle. Sure. They, they all had merit. Yeah, whether they were going to succeed and, and go up and be parabolic or not. But at the end of the day, I've always thought about it as we need this. This is a behavioral game as we spoke, right? You need to manage the behavior of your clients. And if you think that you don't, that you're not going to, uh, if you think you're doing what's best for your clients by denying them a little bit of humanity, you're wrong. You need to set aside some money, give it their play money, and then give them the option to talk about it. You need to be informed about the topic so that when they talk talk to you as a, as a fiduciary, you should be able to give them some good advice as to what it's all about. And the advice right. for me is that we really don't know where it's going. It is an emerging technology. It is an emerging asset class. And it's, it's fun to play, but let's make sure we're not putting 50% of our net worth in it. Right. That's, right. that's the and way I see it from an investment perspective, from a technology and understanding the narrative that, that's driving it, right? Whether it's because people perceive it, uh, whether misplaced or not, as a hedge to inflation, more so, I think it's because of the fear of currency debasement, most particularly uh, after all of the stimuli coming in, in 2020, but against the US dollar, I think that's what. And I think part of that narrative now has has become, okay, institutional money is coming in. They're figuring out the custodial side of things. They're figuring out the regulatory framework. So people are perceiving this as, okay, there's so much money that could come into this space. And that becomes a little bit of that behavioral thing that we were talking about and that greater fool theory. Okay, I can buy this now and sell it for, for, for later. Whether or not there's any intrinsic value, I don't think... I, I, I can't think of any framework to decide whether there's any intrinsic value there, but it seems like there's... A lot of trend behind it. Yeah, it's it's listen, it's 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 fascinating. I personally had bought some uh, back in 2019. I was interested in it before, but it was kind of the is this real? Is this not? Is the SEC going to step in? Is some regulatory body going to step in and put a squash to this? Then there's the concerns about you know as powerful as the government is, could they just say? You can't own this and the story. It's illegal, whatever the case is, and it squashes it. So, so there's always this risk. There's always this risk. And whether it is, as you mentioned, all the other things uh, of, of people looking at this as a legitimate currency or an alternative or, or a digital version of gold or I don't trust what's going on. So, so there's, there's a lot of that that needs to be spoken about. But, but I agree with Rodrigo is I think you can have an allocation to this. Not a huge allocation, but just something where you can say, okay, as a hedge or as a diversifier, we can have some exposure to it. Whether you tell them to go and buy this with your play money, quote unquote, um, that, that could be tough because yeah. then you start to get to the behavioral aspect where people come back and say, look, what have you done for me lately? I know your portfolio went up X, but I did that in a month. Uh, you know, in, in or in a week at this point, whatever, uh, you know, uh, in my crypto. Uh, so so why should I just move all of my portfolio there? Tell me why I shouldn't do that. Uh, That's what I it seems like this is maybe I just say goodbye. We're done. 
Yes, you're right. Go ahead and put it all in. I'll give it one more shot and then I'll fire it. I think these are two separate uh, uh, issues. I think one of them is whether or not crypto has any legitimacy to it or Bitcoin uh, particularly. The other one is maybe sort of understanding what the particular client's biases are and, mm -hmm. and, and maybe setting aside, quote unquote, what you described as play money and saying, OK, maybe for one percent, five percent, whatever percentage we're going to set aside, a smaller percentage of the portfolio for them to sort of uh, uh, scratch that itch. And it's a water cooler. How can you not be be able to talk about Bitcoin? It's a water cooler no. discussion. You have to have a little bit of that. It's for no, for sure. Everybody. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be Bitcoin. It has to. It, it, it was before, Bitcoin. as you said, yeah. marijuana. marijuana. Maybe they want to invest a little bit of their in marijuana stock because they want to have that part of their portfolio and be able to talk about it at dinner parties. Whatever the bias is, you at the end of the day, understanding the clients. What I want to start doing is you, you posted a chart on Slack the other day that I thought was hilarious. Was it soybeans? That soybeans had a more parabolic chart than Bitcoin. Yeah. Right? And next time a client comes out and says, like, should I buy Bitcoin? I'm like, yeah, Bitcoin is good, but how about this Exactly. One? How about soybeans? That's exactly. Yeah. And, and corn had one the same. So the, the, uh, it's know, part it's of that. that. It's, it's the tongue-in-cheek side of things. Of, of and it won't satiate. What they need is to be able to talk about it and brag that they have it. Even Put 100 bucks in. And, yeah, if you're going to take a high-risk bet on something, maybe there's a more suitable... Uh, thing to look at uh, that might benefit your portfolio in a time of distress. Like how Bitcoin do in March? Right. 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 But, uh, you and, know, it's not going to, you know, but uh, who knows? And uh, I was there's, watching there's a lot someone, of debate about it right now. Yeah. I was watching someone major that is always on Twitter talking about Bitcoin and that, they brought that up. They're like, if it's supposed to be an asset that has no correlation to the markets, look what happened in March. Right. And, mm -hmm. and you know, and, and his response was yes. It correlated, and so did gold, and so did the bonds, and blah but blah no blah. But correlation is not negative correlation. People, that, that that's one of the things people Agreed. don't Agreed. understand. But but listen, listen. Tweeting out that I own a bunch of soybean futures is not sexy on Twitter. It's just it's just not. It's not. But talking. <laughs> that about was kind of the point. But that was kind of the point when I sent it. I was like, you want to talk about Bitcoin? I just sent this chart on. So I was like, look at this parabolic rise. So, but we might be missing. You know, and again, I'm I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I think we might be missing the point of a lot of the people, and I do believe in this, and it's becoming more and more of a reality, is that this can be the currency of the future, or it can be the currency that other uh, countries utilize. I, I, I know one of the other live streams you guys were talking about, Argentina, right, uh, recently. So if you're, if you're from a country where there's all this huge devaluation of the currency, you're going to say, thank God, thank God I owned something else or a crypto or, or I had all my money in euro or whatever it may be. It, you know, it's, it, if you look at it from that aspect, you're going to say those were winners. And, and, and now you're, you're, I'm starting to hear, you know, Russia is very interested in Ethereum and ether as far as the, the, the crypto is concerned and that technology behind it. So who knows where we're going to be? I mean, we might have this conversation 10 years from now and say, Oh my God, we talked about this 10 years ago and look what's happened. Or we might be laughing about it. I don't know. It's it's. I look at it as what? it's just roulette. You might hit it. It might be big or just no. Uh, you know, I've told some of my friends who've asked me about it. I'm like, whatever you put in here, it might do well. But just also know that it, whatever you're putting in here, be willing to risk it all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it, right. It, yeah. Whatever whatever coin wins, if any of them do, is going to be an emergent phenomenon we never saw coming. Right? Things Probably. that you've seen with Ripple and. Uh, What's the other one that's being investigated in the SEC? Like, you oh, know, oh, XRP. 
<laughs> yeah. So you get, you know, then you have these, like all of a sudden the, the SEC comes in and says, okay, you did something wrong. Nobody understands what happened. That one's gone. You know, we're never going to know in advance. I think if you're going to get exposure to Bitcoin, if you, yeah. I don't know. Uh, if they can figure out who Satoshi is, out. maybe they're going to get a basket of them. I said, if they could figure out who Satoshi is, maybe they'll go after him or her. Uh, but but I think that was one of the things with XRP and some of the other ones. They're like, this is a security because you created afterwards, as opposed to the way crypto yeah, yeah, yeah. Bitcoin works, where it's you know kind of distributed and everyone's running their nodes and their servers and blah blah blah. It's not one person who just came to the market like an IPO or an ICO, as they would call it, and and put it out there. So who knows, man? I, Satoshi or not, one of the it's funny you, you mentioning that. One of the real concerns that I find in this space is the fact that I think it's, I may get the percentages wrong, but it's a, it's rough numbers. I think 3% of the accounts own 90% of the Bitcoins, something along those lines. So there's such a high concentration that if it, yeah, it, it's hard to put a lot of faith. As far uh, as the market cap you're talking about? Yeah. As, as, as far as the outstanding Bitcoin, I think 3% of the accounts or, or a small percentage of the accounts yeah, of the float controls about ninety percent of the outstanding uh, uh, coins. Okay, so you guys understand supply and demand. So I mean, that's where we end up going. And, and a lot of these people that are just holding on to their coins forever, uh, and and a lot of them, by the way, when we look at that data, we don't even know how accurate that is. Uh, and I'm not an expert. I'm I've been teaching myself over the last year a lot of this stuff and kind of reading up on it. But a lot of these people have actually lost the private key, so that stuff is gone forever. <laughs> Like, which is the scariest part for me. You know, it's one thing we could talk about fiat currency and it's like, if I can hold a dollar bill or a Canadian bill and say, okay, I know who owns this, it's here, whether it's losing value or not. But, uh, you know, if, if you lose your passwords or token keys or whatever and, and stuff and you can't get in or or someone was talking about their hard drive exploded and they just lost it all. It's like, what, what which goes back to investor education, which is why uh, the fact that Canada has democratized access via ETFs or or, or, or tr investment trusts, uh, and the U.S. is still considering that, even though they've already offered futures contracts. But again, it's not for everyone, and for those of uh, for, for those clients that might uh, have a place in their portfolios, it might not be the case that they want to buy Bitcoin outright. They might want to get access indirectly. And, and I'm sure for a lot of the purists, they'd hear me say this and they just want to shoot me and say, for sure not, you want to hold on to your own coin. The fact that it trades 24-7 as opposed to the exchanges is another variable to be considered. It's crazy. I'm looking at it sometimes at two in the morning, like seeing what's going on, right? Just Alex, just, Alex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you your position is probably bigger than it should be, Alex. Just from Listen, that comment, I can say. No, it's, it's more, I'm trying to see if I can find some sort of pattern. Something happens like at 3 a.m. my time, and I'm trying to figure out. I'm like, is it people from New York coming online, or is it? Is no, it it's the, the Asian. Europe? It's the Asian traders, is what I've heard. So that's so like that's more what I'm doing. I'm trying to just figure it out, but there's no rhyme or reason behind it right now. It's not something that you could put in a chart and say, "Oh, here's the candlestick." It just doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> so it, it's, it's, it's a, a lot fan, different. It's a fantastic hobby, you know. Every every year, one must have something to obsess about. Why not let it be Bitcoin right now, right? Or, and, and or your tequila. And your tequila. tequila. So those can go together. Does it, does it need to be either or? I think the the idea, this idea of a, an alternative currency, certainly from a South American perspective, I've seen it in Peru when inflation was out of control. I for, completely forgot about this. It just came to me now. But everybody used to have these point cards back like 25 years ago. Where depending on how many points you use, you got the you got you were able to buy goods 
from different providers. Now, the, the points didn't change. There was no inflation in the point system. So whatever they had in the catalog, you could buy a certain amount of points. But the currency was doubling and tripling every day. But that protected where you were able, so people would exchange, that would have more value. These these uh, uh, these point cards would have more value than the currency itself. That, that the, the idea of finding a way to move away from a centralized government that's screwing it up is is always going to be there. And I think Bitcoin, a lot of the other coins, have made it have been a godsend to those countries, Africa, right. South America. They're all using it. Yeah, particularly right. for the countries where they 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 might be experiencing something uh, uh, akin to a failed state or or hyperinflation. You know, Venezuela comes to mind uh, as a, a as another South American on the call here. Like, but you you have other places that have lived through similar things. That ability not to have to bring all of your cash and put it into gold or precious metals, but actually put it into something that's digital and then flee and get it on the other side of the border. Yeah, there's real value to that, no doubt. So let's let's jump ahead real quick. I don't know how much time we have here, but if you well, think I have about not, five more minutes and then I got to hop on. Yeah. OK, so if you think about this and you, and you and you brought up a very important thing, if, forget about the crypto aspect. But if you think about financial technology, which is one of the things that we've been investing for our clients in a lot of these countries, whether you want to consider them a third world country, a second world country, whatever it is, they basically leapfrogged. Right. It's the same thing that they did with the phones. Right. They said, we don't need landlines. We'll just go straight to cell phones. We just put the towers up. So that's the same thing. There's a lot of underbanked and unbanked countries. And a lot of these companies are coming out there with the fintech tools and saying, whether it be Venmos and the squares and blah, 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 and say, you don't need a bank. You can send money to each other directly through this vehicle. If you got a cell phone, you're good to go. You have a bank in your hand. And and I think that's going to be the next disruptor in the space. You know, we've been investing in things like that. We've been investing in the uh, AI space. We've been investing in robotics. So, you know, we add that as a part of our clients' portfolios where you need to look at, okay, this is something that you're not going to touch for the next 10, 20 years. Uh, and, and, and I think it's interesting to see that. Uh, playing out, and we've seen it here in the states. We've seen it, uh, uh, you know, all over. And and I, as far as the robotics, I don't know if you guys talk about kind of investing in Japan or something. Uh, who knows? Maybe maybe Japan will come back to uh, its golden years and and be able to be kind of a dominant force with a lot of the robotics and stuff that that, that they're building out there. How about biotech? Well, think- Do you guys play around in biotech at all? Little That's- bit. Little bit. I'm 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 more fascinated with those other three areas that that uh you know the like I said the fintech AI and robotics. That's something I I know a lot. Yeah, you more guys have about. a fair the fair fund, right? The fi- or yeah, the yeah. So the fair, fair tech fund, yeah. So the fair F A I R fintech AI robotics. AI. Yeah, so so kind of kind of being able to do it there has has been fun for me. You know, it's something that I've invested in a lot. Uh, a while and 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 uh, now See, i think that that is a much more fruitful conversation than bitcoin conversation that we'll hear from okay. it internally as soon as we hang up for okay. saying that but i also want to talk if we, if we, before we go if we get a chance of yeah. talking about giving back i think a lot of your audience yeah. advisors you know we're in a blessed position today uh most of us were not hurt as much as other business owners were, and we're, if we're in a position to be able to give back, I think is something that we need to do. I think we all need to step up and play our part, uh, and 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 do whatever it may be. Whether you help, uh, you know, a, a, a business owner that's in need, or whether you help a friend or family member that's in need, or you know, giving back to the homeless community, uh, whatever whatever it is, I think we all need to step up as an industry and and, and do our part. 
Well, you know what, man? I've always seen you be willing to stand up publicly uh, about the things that you believe in at what could be uh, a great cost to have an opinion about your values and putting them out there. And I think that, that bravery and the going out and representing the people uh, that you think uh, should be represented has been uh, really commendable. So I think if anybody you. can you know, follow your lead, they should. Uh, it's it, it takes some guts to be able to do that. And to be, so it's, and go out there and make the make the right moves for your community. And I think no, I think it's great for an asset manager for building building a community for your clients and private wealth. You got to get back to that community as much as you can. You have to. I, I think there's no way around it. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't think about it. Or you know, to, to the benefit of most uh, advisors' situation, they they don't know how to go about it. You know, it could be as simple as um, I don't know in in in, uh, in your area like what's a major. Uh, market, but like here, whether it be Kroger or Ralph's or Vons or whatever, you know, we buy, me and my wife will buy $10 gift cards whenever we go there and then we'll pass them out. It could be any to anyone. You know, if I get off the freeway, there's unfortunately always like a homeless gentleman or uh, someone that's standing there and I will give it to them and say, listen, go get yourself some food. Uh, take care of yourself. And then now we've we've done the things with the blankets. We bought a bunch of blankets and I'll I'll keep a whole box of them in my car on the front seat. So if I if I see someone, I will literally give it to them and say, listen, it's it's I, I mean I know it's a lot colder where you're at. Uh, I think it's 74 today here, but but still it can uh, get chilly. Don't tell me that. <laughs> Sorry man. That, I'm gonna hand out a blanket I, to Richard. But it's little things like that, right? It could be done. It doesn't have to be, yeah. oh, I don't want to take on a major skill. Like you could do it yourself. And, uh, and and I know sometimes I do get flack for people like, oh, you're why are you promoting this or why are you putting it on Twitter or thing or, or you're patting yourself on the back. I'm like, this is not what I'm doing. I want people to understand that they can do this as well. They can they can learn from this. And most of the time people don't know what to do. Uh, you know, you could put a little goodie bag. When we used to travel a lot, if I got some extra shampoos or things or whatever, something as simple as body wash, like I'll put them in a Ziploc bag. I don't need that stuff. I will give it to them and say, here you go. I mean, it's just simple things like that that could you, be done. You're totally right. I, I was reminded of my mother. Uh, we had a car full of toys and bread when we were in, we were in Peru. Admittedly, the poverty there is at the time was over 60%. So wherever you went, you were surrounded by children, every stop sign. So you, she was constantly giving out um, charity in, in many aspects, right? Coupons for uh, lunches at their local, wherever, whatever stops we frequented, we yeah. would have an agreement to, to feed them. So, yeah, there's something certain in communities like that. You can certainly do that. And, and you know, if you have a passion about anything, like my wife has a passion about animals and uh, and she helps that's that's what we focus on as a family that's what our values are about we love and that's good if you can get back back on a consistent basis yeah i don't know if you have children but if you do getting them involved is is huge and having them learn about empathy is is fantastic one of the organizations that actually reached out to me is called uh uh blankets for all um and they they basically do something where they will allow the schools to create this little kind of fundraiser and and the kids will write a note to the homeless people, you know, talking about empathy. And they go through a whole exercise about an hour. They'll close their eyes and imagine if they were homeless, what they would do, what they feel and so forth, and kind of write their feelings down there. And they will take that note along with a blanket and either directly give it to homeless people or take it to the nearest homeless shelter. 
And, and that's the one way for them to understand and, and be a little bit more humble and, and to learn about empathy and, and caring. And, and, and that's fantastic. So, so there's organizations like that that I'm going to start working with this year as well, going back to what am I excited with. Yeah, well, yeah and, and, and just help them and kind of partner up with schools here in Los Angeles and schools throughout the nation. Well, Alex, thanks so much for joining us today, man. That was uh, a wealth of information. Hopefully the, our advisor group uh, is able to take something away from cheers. it. Cheers, gentlemen. I'm finished my drink, yeah. so uh, cheers. Have a fantastic uh, weekend, and uh, we'll hopefully see you again in the next Fit Intuit event. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks, Alex. Thank Thanks, you for Alex. having me, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University Podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.